welcome to the final episode of the Totally Football Show presents Zonal Marking. Today, we're looking at Bayern Munich's historic treble winning side of 2012-2013. And we're doing it. Why are we doing it? Because we've got Michael Cox here and his new book, Zonal Marking, The Making of Modern European Football, is out now. Michael, before we talk about today's show, just in case anyone's just tuned into this for the first time, they've been away on holiday... Why isn't this a normal show and what's your book about? Uh, it's not a normal show because it's the summer and we don't have any football to talk about. And so we're going through the history of uh, the modern history of European football since 1992, looking at one great side from uh, lots of different eras mentioned in the book. And today we're talking about Germany and uh, Bayern Munich. And that's why Rafa Honigstein is here. Hello, Rafa. Hello, Ian. Hello, Michael. Familiar territory for you, Bayern Munich. Yes, I think so. You've had a lot to write about over recent years as they have uh, reassumed the throne after a brief period out and that's about the time period that we're talking about. But before talking about how they won the European Cup in 2013, we should probably just talk a little bit about the near misses. There's 2010, first of all, uh, against Jose Mourinho's Inter. Pass Van Boyden, Diego Melito. It's his night. It's Inter's night. It's Mourinho's night, surely. Yeah, this was Louis van Gaal's first year at Bayern. He'd really completely reshaped the team's playing style. Uh, maybe for the first time since Paul Chernay. This is going to be a little bit niche now, but in the late 70s, early 80s, Bayern had a guy from Hungary who played a very slow possession type football. And that was a time of men marking. So Bayern literally would play the ball in between themselves 10 metres ahead of their own goal until somebody would finally come out and then they would pass the ball forward because that one guy had left his position, left his man. It wasn't especially spectacular football, but it had a clear identity then. And ever since, they were more reliant on big players. In Germany, we say Heldenfußball, hero football. You know, you have big players doing big things. If you have enough of them, you do enough of big things, you win a lot of games. Van Gaal with his Dutch background, with a background of position football, possession football, really for the first time, certainly in modern times, gave Bayern a structure and identity that was bigger than the individuals. And this was a team in, in 09-10 that wasn't quite ready for it. They uh, were a little bit lopsided when uh, Frank Ribéry was suspended for the final. It was all down to Ian Robin against Inter. Bayern had very little going for themselves that game. And ultimately, they ran into an Inter side that was just a little bit too street smart, too savvy, and Bayern, you know, with Van Boyt and Demichelis at the back, perhaps weren't quite Champions League material then. Uh, two years later, though... It's the most ludicrous final, I think, in recent <laughs> years. I mean, there's no question that Bayern are ready. It's in their own bleeding stadium. You know, when, they, I, when they... I agreed to do this, nobody told me that <laughs> bring up 2012 We've got another five I've minutes only just, <laughs> I've only just gotten over it. One kick of the ball by Didier Drogba. Yeah, it's the greatest night in Chelsea's history. Champions League winners the hard way. They've beaten Bayern in their own backyard and at their own game on penalties. It was a strange game because Chelsea came there almost against the odds. They were very defensive. They got that unbelievable result against Barcelona in the semi-final in, in, in circumstances that you probably never see again in terms of kind of back to the wall, the Alamo kind of performance. And it was a similar case against Bayern. 
where they almost kind of played for for extra time for penalties or waiting for things to happen. And as it happened, Bayern scored late. But then from the one corner that uh, Chelsea had in the, in the whole game, Bayern had 20. Chelsea had one. <laughs> that was enough for Didier Drogba to equalise. Then it went to penalties. Well, first then Robin yeah. misses a penalty in extra time. Then it goes to penalties. Yeah, not a great night for Bayern. Rafa, your fists have clenched white uh, under yeah. the desk. Um, but I don't know if you write about this, Michael, but one lovely little stat that I always remember about this game is the whole 120 minutes didn't have a single offside. That's how deep <laughs> That's how deep Chelsea were. You couldn't play an offside against them. How many psychiatrist sessions has this been now? <laughs> Loads. I mean, in spite of these two defeats, particularly that second one, Michael, there's a feeling that German football is is on the rise. It's, it's going somewhere, isn't it? And it's on and off the pitch as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think going back to the 2010 World Cup in particular when Germany turned up with a completely new generation. Obviously, they got to the final in in 2008 and lost to Spain, but 2010, they're a completely different force. And of course, they lose again to Spain in the semi-final. But until that point, I think it'd been the most impressive side. Um, and you've got a lot of talents, not all of them at Bayern, of course. Ozil was kind of considered the most exciting talent. But there's a huge overlap between Bayern players and the Germany players. And for the first time, certainly in my lifetime and, and maybe beforehand, people were really excited about Germany, about German football, not just for what was happening in the stands, because we'd heard you know, so much about the atmospheres and the ownership of clubs, but actually on the pitch. There's a, a great generation of talent here and uh, you're almost just waiting for them to to seal the deal, whether it's at club level or, or for the national side. Yeah, I mean, this is a time when every other football blog is reporting £2.50 tickets and all the beer you can drink in your seat right behind the goal. Um, everyone's getting very excited, but they're getting excited about the homegrown talent as well because you've got Philip Lahm, Tony Cruz, Bastian Schweinsteiger, Thomas Muller. The way they came through and, and the, the team they came into, does that contribute to Bayern's ability to sort of formulate a clear style? Yeah, there's always um, that debate, you know, what came first? Was the idea so strong that Germany changed their identity and started playing a different football? Or were they always going to do it when you have the likes of Mesut Özil available and Schweinsteiger and Lam, who are technical players who kind of force you into playing that way, otherwise you're not utilising them right. But it's true that both things happen at the same time, helped by the influence of foreign coaches helped by the influence of Louis van Gaal who really left a, left a big mark in this very brief spell but also of course with that much improved education that these players have received this is the first generation that have come through the academy system which was reinstated at the turn of the century so if you think that uh, Lahm, Müller these guys were sort of 9, 10 years old at the time where Germans suddenly realised, okay, we have to be much more systemic, we have to be much more professional when it comes to training youngsters. This generation is the first one that benefits from that. And it could be a coincidence, a happy one, and these things often are when it comes to sort of national teams and generations. But there's also a sort of inherent logic in that, that these guys emerge as very different type of, of footballers. And as Michael said, look a little bit different, play a little bit different than the kind of Germany you've been used to in, in, in decades before. If I wanted to read a book that explored the process of all that, is there anything that I could find in my local library? No. Okay. <laughs> um, the manager of Bayern Munich, Jupp Heynckes. Um, tell me a little bit about him. I mean, Jupp Heynckes' role in all of this is, is quite a curious one because this is a guy who 
was a big player, was a wonderful striker, 174 World Cup with Germany, part of the uh, iconic Borussia Mönchengladbach team of the 70s. As a coach, he'd had great success, but most of it, um, well, some of it in in, uh, in Germany. He was twice a champion with Bayern, but then was fired. Uh, couldn't quite do it uh, at other places in Germany. Had some poor spells at Frankfurt, at, Sch- at Schalke as well. Um, and had some better success in Spain. But even then, when he won the European Cup with Real Madrid, to get them over that uh, 30-odd year spell of of, uh, of nothingness in, in in Europe, they still fired him because they didn't like their positioning in the league table and didn't like the football and he didn't really get on with the team. So by the time he takes over Bayern for a third time, because he'd had a small stint as a caretaker after Jürgen Klinsmann, so this is his third stint, there is a sense that, you know, he's he's got the experience and he's a lovely man, but he isn't necessarily seen as a big tactical innovator. Uh, what he does do is he builds on the Louis van Gaal platform. He makes spine defensively more solid, organizes them better than when they're not in possession. But it is still a little bit of a fragile setup because when they finish runners-up in all three competitions in 2012, including the Champions League final... It gets very close to him either getting fired or resigning. Um, but Bayern stick with him and Bayern for once do something that is rarely done in European football at this level. They say, OK, we will back the manager and we will actually try to fix the problems of the team by making strategic decisions for the team. So they go straight through the spine. They buy Mandzukic, which is a clear upgrade to to Gomez and helps Bayern play a much more pressing game. They buy Dante for the back, who's not spectacular, but solid enough and decent in possession. And they buy Javi Martinez as a holding midfielder to help really Bastian Schweinsteiger, who has that strategic mindset, but isn't always sort of the quickest guy to cover the back four and needs that bit of extra help behind him. And those three, combined with a more aggressive pressing game out of possession, which they shamelessly copy from Jurgen Klopp's Dortmund, make a big difference. And Bayern go from being back in the mix to being the best team in Europe for a couple of years. And this is a thing that I think uh, certainly younger listeners might not realise and quite a lot of people will forget that Bayern actually sagged so bad they dropped out of the Champions League. There was a period with Jurgen Klinsmann as manager in which the high point was probably the refurb he did on the training ground. The roots of this great team go back some distance, don't they, Michael? You've actually pinpointed it to one game against Wolfsburg in 2009. That was Ian Robbins' uh, debut for Bayern, and uh, he comes on the second half against Wolfsburg. It's in the Van Howe era, of course, so it's a time where they're trying to play more possession-based football. But Robbins scores twice in the second half, both goals assisted by Ribery, both on the counter-attack. And I remember watching the the game at the time or the highlights at the time and thinking, wow, okay, this is going to be a new era for Bayern. And they look seriously threatening. And we're recording this 10 years on and they're only just about to leave. And of course, they haven't quite had that influence uh, the last few years, but it's been an incredible, I mean, a decade long spell of them both. Considering these are two players who came, they had discipline problems, fitness problems, both are bouncing around clubs all over Europe. And Bayern is really where they found their home. Ribery and Robin are really dominating the side and Robin, particularly in that first season, is just electric. He scores a couple of essentially winners for Bayern in the Champions League 
knockout stages or they're, they're actually equalizers and they go through and away goals uh, one against Fiorentina which is the kind of classic Robin goal uh, where he cuts inside and shoots into the far corner and then a brilliant volley at Old Trafford which takes Bayern through to the Champions League semi-finals And uh, there is an argument that they were so strong on the flanks, uh, not only because of those two, but also the fullbacks. Yeah, they had uh, Alaba and Lam behind them. And of course, later when Guardiola comes in, he takes advantage of the fact that they're very tactically intelligent and they're very good on the ball to play them in more narrow positions. Um, but beforehand, they were playing as, I guess, more conventional fullbacks, although still getting forward a lot. They're very difficult to shut down those two players. And I think that in turn creates a little bit more space for for Ribery and Robin to uh, to wreak havoc down the flanks. And let's just have a little chat about Lam because he's he's such a fascinating player, isn't he? Well, I think there's an argument to say that Lam is sort of the most complete German player that has been produced since the 70s. Um, he wasn't very physical, he wasn't very tall, he didn't score a lot of goals, but on the ball he's probably the closest that we've had to a Pirlo-type figure, to a Busquets, to that kind of guy that can dominate midfield. He only played there for a short time over the stretch of his career but he played even as a midfielder when he was in uh, in a fullback position in the sense that he would never give the ball away would always take up really intelligent positions would always be an outlet do all the things that somebody who'd be in a more strategic central role would do uh, without almost people noticing and uh, the joke used to be that you know people used to say well today I saw Philip Lamis place a ball because it was so unusual for him not to do the right thing and not to, to play without mistake. I just want to say, add one more thing to, to Robin and Ribery. I, I recently uh, wrote a piece about them and uh, I was wondering about their impact and it occurred to me that because Bayern's game changed from that hero football we talked about, which was very centrally informed, you know, a big box-to-box player in Matthäus Effenberg or Balak and a big centre-forward and even going back further, a big sweeper all through the middle. Suddenly you have these guys through the flanks who kind of dominate the game. And that is both the effect but also the prerequisite to the possession football that goes with it because automatically the midfield has to become more structured when your basic idea of winning the game is to get these guys into the best positions as often as possible. You can't then play that kind of running football that kind of power football in the middle, you need to be more structured, you need to pass it from side to side, isolate the back four. They not only, I think, contributed through their goals and through the cutting edge in the final third, but they were so good that they actually changed the identity or helped, shall we say, change the identity of Bayern's football throughout this decade that they were there together. And one other player in this period who, who always really fascinated me was Thomas Muller. Now, at the time this team started building up and Thomas Muller appeared, Michael, you were writing the zonal marking blog, which was very useful because you had those lovely little diagrams of how everyone lined up. Muller would have been a difficult one to fit on the chalkboard, wouldn't he? Yeah, I must say it took me a long time, it took me years really to work out what Muller was all about. I think even now it's sometimes difficult to pinpoint what his strengths are, but he was a, certainly a very unique player, someone who was intelligent tactically. He's still alive. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He was a good man, a kind man. <laughs> that's true. Um, 
and was difficult for managers really to give instructions to sometimes because he wanted to play his own game. But yeah, he brought something slightly different in that number 10 role. He wasn't kind of a classic number 10. He wasn't like Ozil for the national team. But uh, particularly in European games, I think he was often the difference for Bayern. When asked to describe what his position was, and uh, I think you'll appreciate this in the original Essex, called himself a Ram Deuter. Is that right? Did I get that right? Yeah, close enough. Yeah, that would do. Raum Deuter. What is one of those? Um, well, Raum is space and Deuter is interpreter. So nice. he calls himself an interpreter of space, which um, is really a great way to describe yourself. And, and true as well, because he realized, I think, from an early stage in his development that he wasn't really good at anything specific in football. He wasn't very strong. He wasn't very powerful. He wasn't very fast. He wasn't very technical. So he had to play with the things that other people kind of neglect and space is a big part of that. He would take up positions that other people didn't think were worth taking up. The classic example would be running to the byline when there's a throw. Most strikers are sort of coming into position where they can either play somebody else in or already wait for the ball to come to them. But he would go, knowing that there's no offside, he would go all the way up close to the goalkeeper. And, you know, sometimes defenders would just look and think, you know, what is he doing? But that is the kind of stuff that he did playing a lot with his head because the feet are perhaps not at quite as extraordinary as some of this overall game. Going back to the team as a whole, Michael, um, they've kind of got slay two dragons at this time, haven't they? Because they've got to get past Dortmund, who are going to win back-to-back titles in the Bundesliga. And then, of course, you've got that Barcelona side. Yeah, they almost were able to take on different identities. You know, when they played Dortmund, they were Dortmund with a kind of high energy pressing side and, and Bayern tried to calm things down and impose themselves on the game in terms of possession. And then in Europe, they were trying to supersede Barcelona, of course, who had been a, a big inspiration to them. But in those two semifinals, Bayern were able to almost become the Dortmund and be the pressing side, the energy side, the physical side. And you know, I, th- I think when you consider their ability to do that, I think they're quite possibly the most complete side we've seen in the last 20 years of European football because they could beat you in so many different ways. Rafa, you uh, wrote a book about Jurgen Klopp. It says here, I haven't heard anything about it, but you make the case in that that uh, Bayern took a lot from Klopp's gegenpressing style, uh, took a bit from the dressing room as well. Is that fair? I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, Bayern realised, I think, that to get past Dortmund and to get that extra bit of quality that they were missing in in Europe, they had to develop a more aggressive, a better style outside possession. I think it wasn't enough necessarily to hope for the opposition attack to break down and then start again. You'd have to force the issue a lot more. You have to really impose yourself. And both Barcelona and Dortmund in different ways had shown and Spain, of course, what a powerful weapon high pressing could be. Uh, once Bayern took that and added that to the quality of Ribéry and Robin and Mandzukic and all these guys working even harder, then it were very, very tough to play against. And this is the second time in this show we've talked about Bayern Munich, the club, finding a problem, identifying a problem and overcoming it with a clear strategy. Is, is that one of the things that's made this Bayern team great? The fact that because it's run 
by people with a long experience of football or in actually playing football as opposed to some other large European teams we could name. Is that one of the reasons why they've gone on to be so relentlessly big? Well, I think if you want to go back to sort of the 40 years that Uli Hoeneß has been in the most powerful job, then you'd say, yes, they clearly have been getting most decisions right or let's say they've been less frequently wrong than than most other teams. Um, they also benefited from a lot of external things. For example, they were given the Olympic Stadium. Suddenly they have the biggest stadium in Germany. Then there's a lot of powerful industry in, in Munich that can be exploited, etc. But yes, I mean, if you want to be very complimentary, you say that football people there have more often than not got things right. But of course, there were also accidents and things working out almost in spite of themselves. I mean, it took Louis van Gaal to figure out that Bastian Schweinsteiger was a holding midfielder. He'd been there already half a decade and had played in almost any position and no one had figured out that this guy would be best used at the centre. It took the wisdom, the vision of van Gaal to change Bayern's setup. It took somebody like Guardiola then to take it even further, even though they weren't rewarded with another European Cup final. So, yes... Uh, good decisions, yes, football people, but of course, some happy accidents as well and just random luck played a big role. Michael, it's the 2012-2013 season and Bayern are starting to look pretty formidable in the Champions League. Is this the time you see the, the monster developing? Yeah, definitely. And, and you see in particular, I think, how good they are now at pressing. There's a game against Juventus where Juve just can't really live with the tempo of the pressing. I think Mandzukic was particularly good in that tie maybe what convinced Juventus to buy him a few years later. And a game against Arsenal as well, where, where Tony Cruz is playing as the number 10, where we haven't really seen him recently. He plays much uh, deeper, but he's excellent at pressing as well. Müller geht außen. Ribery. Der Freigeist, der Französische. Kroos, da hat die Technik. Und deshalb steht er zurück. Rafa, we've tormented you about 2012. Um, it's only fair that we give you a chance to talk about 2013, not the final, but the semi-final against Barcelona. Talk me through it. Well, in a strange way, I think most people associate this Bayern team more with a semi-final, with those two iconic performances against Barcelona, than perhaps with the final, which was very nervy and could have gone either way. But they completely destroyed Barcelona. Again, with a bit of luck, because Messi was not quite fully fit. He didn't look happy on the pitch. Bayern found it easy to funnel him into central position and then basically crowded him out, crowded Barcelona out, and then they were devastating on the counter-attack, which is another reason um, why some people think of this team as a counter-attacking team. But as Michael very rightly said, this team were able to do almost anything. In German, we say, Eier milch legende Wollsau, uh, which refers to a animal that uh, lays eggs, uh, gives you milk, but also can be shared for wool. Of course, it doesn't exist, but it's <laughs> it would be the ideal animal to cultivate if you were a farmer. I always think the English are lagging behind in these kind of things. <laughs> um, need to give a little bit more thought. So this team could could really do almost anything, and it worked as a team. And this is something we haven't talked about yet. It worked also as a team because they were bonded by the horrific experience of 2012 and by this feeling that this couldn't be the end of the story, that something different had to happen. It was Bastian Schweinsteiger who said, I'd never wanted to see those kind of faces again that I saw (laughs) 
after 2012 in the dressing room. And I think that combined with that strong bond that they had with Heinkes on a on a human level, if you will, and also with Peter Hammond, his assistant coach, made for a all-powerful combination. Rebury. First back was taken away by Puskis, but this is Alaba into... Michael, this is epochal, isn't it? This is the the dawn of a new age, this kind of result. Yeah, I mean, for Barcelona to lose like that, it wasn't Guardiola's Barcelona, of course, and Barca had a lot of, you know, issues with Tito Villanova, who was who was ill at that time and was, uh, you know, in and out of treatment. Um, but Barcelona had only lost since Guardiola took over to Chelsea and to Inter, you know, two teams who parked the bus, basically, and, and got lucky on the break. And Bayern just completely outplayed them. I mean... Uh, I remember a lot of speculation before that game about whether this would be the first time for years that Barca have less than 50% of possession. But in the end, Bayern didn't even really bother about that. They beat them in terms of counter-attacking, in terms of set pieces and in terms of pressing. And um, I rewatched this game recently for the book and it's the level of dominance is incredible. Uh, Javi Martinez in particular, he just completely gets the better of Iniesta, who obviously at that time is, is maybe the most revered midfielder around. And I mean, to win 4-0... We're speaking in a year where there have been incredible scorelines in the semi-finals, but at that point we were used to quite tight and cagey games. You didn't really get four nils in semi-finals. It was quite incredible. And then they got a three nil in the second leg. Yeah, almost taking the Mickey in the reverse game. It was over pretty quickly as soon as they got the first goal. But again, here you see the speed of uh, Robin and Rebri in particular on the counter attack, and and yeah, seven nil aggregate win. And then Rafa, 2013, you are the most prominent German correspondent in England. Um, when you first come to this country, German football, oh, it's still a, extremely high quality, but it's not where it is at this point. This must be quite a proud moment for you. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I first came, I've been here for so long that I've gone through all the cycles, you see. So when I first came, German football was actually pretty good, mm. the early 90s, mid 90s. we Or at least we won a lot of stuff, you know, European Championship, Dortmund winning the Champions League, Bayern winning UEFA Cup. So things looked okay. But there's no doubt that the football that these two teams played and the German national team played in the first half of this decade was a, a whole different level altogether and really made one proud and uh, you know just happy that German football can get to that level. And it was, of course, it was a wonderful experience for for anyone connected with German football to play at Wembley of all places, you know, which is really seen as sort of the a hallowed ground of of, of uh, world football setting from a German perspective and see the two Germans being there, whereas, curiously, the Premier League, which as a league is much more powerful and wealthy and has certainly more big teams at the time, were actually punching so far below their weight or should have done a lot better relative to the resources, which kind of made that small, short window of German dominance even uh, feel a little bit sweeter. And of course, this Dortmund team, not to dwell on them for too long here, but though there's loads of lovely stuff in, in the book, this Dortmund team's total wage bill is actually lower than that god-awful Queen's Park Rangers side that gets relegated that season. It is. Yes, yes. <laughs> there you go. And it wasn't a bad final, was it? It was really good, actually. I rewatched this and I'd, I'd forgotten the extent of really what an open game it is. And there's a very obvious pattern where to go back to what we said before, Dortmund are the intensity side. And they dominate the start of both halves, but I can't really find the breakthrough. But they have all the shots at the start of both halves. And 
the Bayern come into it gradually in the first half um, and the second half there are goals they swap goals and the last 10 minutes really is a case of when rather than if Robin and, and Muller switch positions and and those two make the inroads really and it's um, a matter of time and, until Robin gets the, the winner Frenchman's done well Robin is there and Robin has surely won it for Bayern Munich the continue is great personal record here at Wembley it's still early in the 21st century, but when you go back over the teams that have really stood out, where where are Bayern in that pantheon of recent greats? I mean, they didn't quite do themselves justice in terms of the amount of stuff they won in Europe. I think under Guardiola, they should have at least won one more Champions League. They fell short in the semi-finals, sometimes deservedly so, sometimes because they really got unlucky. Uh, it can happen. But... The fact, I think, that you know, we saw three final appearances in uh, three years, five semi-finals in seven years. I think I'm uh, correct in saying. I mean, shows you that Bayern were a significant factor, and for the first time, certainly in uh, in modern football, they went into Champions League campaigns as favourites, favourites ahead of more traditional heavyweights, or shall we say, more recent heavyweights that other people would have would have fancied ahead of them and that I think was the extent of their dominance and of their improvement but ultimately they couldn't quite sustain it and it had been a slow regression ever since Guardiola has left perhaps it was again inevitable to come down a little bit from those highs but I think they will look back over the whole decade and think maybe one Champions League trophy was not quite adequate for what could have been achieved for this team. And Michael, the resurgence of the Bayern side after those wobbly years kind of unfolded at the same time as, as you went from sort of blogging to writing about tactics on a, on a higher level. Of the teams that you covered in those early years, this must have been one of the most fascinating. Yeah, I mean, as Rafa says, you know, they could have won three in a row like Zidane's uh, Real did. I think they were on that level. It didn't happen. And they didn't have the legacy of Guardiola's Barcelona in terms of perfecting one style. But I really think that if you get the, the last 20 Champions League winners in a kind of mini league, I think there's a good chance that Bayern win it, this Bayern, because they could win in so many different ways. And I don't think anyone really figured out how to, to crack them. There was a kind of obvious formula for getting the better of Guardiola's Barcelona, not that teams did it that often. But I'm not quite sure where the weakness for this side was. It was a real kind of formidable machine. Um, to use a kind of language you used to say about German teams, but also with tremendous technical quality as well. Well, that's all we've got time for, not just for this episode, but for this series as well. Thank you very much, Rafa Honigstein. Thank you for having me. Uh, Rafa has been a bit coy, of course. He does have uh, uh, books out. Das Reboot, the definitive look at German football's resurgence. One among three you've written now, I think. No, oh, I lose count. <laughs> thanks also to tom williams julian laron alvaro romeo and james horncastle they've all been with us on previous episodes and of course to you michael cox your book zonal marking the making of modern european football is out now absolutely all over the place two summers from now we won't have an international tournament that gives you two years can you write another book I'll have to wait and see as well. We've got a funny situation where in three summers we won't have a tournament as well with the World Cup. So oh, God, yeah. 
Maybe right. maybe it will delay everything by a year. Let's wait and see. We're all going to have to get cracking. Zonal marking, the making of the lower leagues. I reckon that's what I want to see next. <laughs> I'll have a word of your agent. Thank you very much for joining us. That is the end of the series of uh, Michael Cox-related podcasts, but it's not the end of the Totally Football Show this summer. Um, we've still got shows all the way through to August, and then in August, oh, then we've got the big reboot, and we'll see you there. 